So take a few moments to settle your mind in the present, the here and now, and refresh your bodhicitta motivation that you generated earlier today. So recently, we were looking at the mind, according to Sotrantika, which has a very good explanation of the mind, different kinds of mind. So let's just, in meditation, review that, some of the main points about the mind. So one is the definition of mind, what mind actually is, and it's defined as clear and knowing. So clear can mean different things, but probably the simplest is it's non-material, non-physical. So it's not composed of particles like atoms, molecules, and so on. And it doesn't have any physical properties like shape, color, size, weight, and so on. So it's not something that can be seen with our eyes or with any of the instruments that scientists have invented so far. So it's not an object of direct perception, but we can know the mind just by observing our mind. For example, in meditation or using mindfulness. So it's non-physical and it's that which knows or experiences or is aware of things. And just spend a few moments <laughs> contemplating what the mind is to try to get a better understanding of it. Because you do have a mind, and in fact, it's your mind that you are using right now to listen and think about and understand these words that I'm speaking. So just contemplate your mind, understand its nature of clear and knowing.
isn't something that's always there, static, always the same, but it's constantly changing. And there are different kinds of mind, different instances of mind, different ways the mind works. So one of the main ways of dividing up the mind according to how it knows things is into perception and conception. So perception is when we know things directly or nakedly. And for us, the most common types of perceptions are with our five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and then tactile or body uh, sensations. So when we have those kinds of experiences, which we have many millions or zillions every day, our mind is contacting the object, experiencing the object in a direct way rather than through a mental image. So just contemplate that. Look at your own mind, your own experiences, and recognize perceptions. The other main type of mind is conception, and this occurs in the mental consciousness, not in any of the five senses, five sense consciousnesses. And when we have conceptions, our mind knows its object through a mental image, not directly. It doesn't directly contact the object, but it knows the object with an image, a conceptual image, a mental image. So for example, when we remember things we saw or heard or experienced, for example, things we did earlier today, work that you did, people you talked to, the lunch you ate and so on. So we remember those experiences. We have mental images, conceptual images of those experiences. And also when we think, we have thoughts, we visualize, we do meditation, especially analytical meditation. So those kinds of mental activities involve conception. So just contemplate that and try to recognize conceptions in your experience.
another way of dividing the mind is into valid and non-valid. So some of our experiences are valid and some are not. And the meaning of valid is new or fresh <laughs> and correct or incontrovertible experience of an object. So for example, when we see something and we're seeing it in a correct way, not in a mistaken way, and we see it as it is, like the color blue or the color red, um, the very first moment of perceiving that object is a valid consciousness or a valid cognizer, valid direct perceiver. And the later moments, second, third, and so on, are no longer fresh and therefore no longer valid. So just for example, each time we have a direct perception of an object and we see it or perceive it correctly, the first moment of that experience is a valid cognizer, a valid direct perceiver. So we probably have many of those throughout the day. And another type of valid cognizer is conceptual, and this is called a, a valid inference. It's used to unknow or experience objects that are hidden from us for some reason or another. Um, so for example, when we see smoke coming from the chimney of a house, we can infer that there's a fire in the stove or fireplace of that house. We can't directly see the fire, it's hidden from us, but we can infer it. So this is a conceptual mind that thinks, oh, they must be burning a fire inside their house because I see the smoke coming out of the chimney. So we have lots of those kinds of experiences as well when we correctly infer the existence of something that we can't directly perceive at that moment. And this type of mind of valid inference is the kind of mind we need to develop to be able to understand certain objects that are part of the path. For example, subtle impermanence, the momentary changes that are taking place constantly with impermanent phenomena, and also selflessness, the lack of a certain type of false self or emptiness, the lack of inherent existence. So those are phenomena that we can't directly perceive right now but we can get at them. We can come to know them, to understand them by developing a valid inference, valid inferential cognizer.
and try to feel that this is a really important thing to understand even though it may be difficult challenging but we do need to make effort to understand the mind and specifically valid types of mind because we need to develop those to be able to progress along the path and attain uh, liberation from samsara and eventually enlightenment so we can benefit all sentient beings. So where we left off last time, we were just talking about valid inferential cognizers, and um, I think I already gave the definition of it. Um, so the definition is a new and incontrovertible, which basically means really correct and infallible. So a new and incontrovertible determinative cognizer it's a complicated term but it just it's just another way of saying a conceptual mind mm -hmm. conceptual minds are also called determinative cognizers <laughs> and um and it arises in dependence on a correct sign its basis okay so there's always some kind of sign or reason that enables us to have an inferential cognizer. So in that example of the uh, seeing the smoke and inferring that there's a fire, the smoke is a sign, um, a correct sign uh, to know that there's a fire because smoke is a result of fire. So if there's smoke, there's fire, as the saying goes. And then, um, with more, you know, Buddhist uh, Dharma kind of inferential, inferential cognizers, the classic example that's usually given is to know impermanence, to understand the impermanence of an object, um, like a table or sound or whatever, the sign is product, being a product, being produced. Since it's produced, it arises from causes and conditions, Therefore, it must be impermanent, subject to change. There's a pervasion there, but one needs to study and contemplate and meditate to be able to really get that, for that to grab your mind and bring about an inferential cognizer. Um, so, uh, any question about the definition? Anything that's not clear? probably heard this many times before <laughs> some of you have anyway yeah it's uh, there's a big section in the book uh, volume two foundation of buddhist practice yeah so there's quite a big section there about well venerable translated translates it as reliable cognizers mm -hmm. but she goes through the different kinds and there's quite a big section on inferences inferential cognizers so there's three types, according to Sotrantika. Um, yeah, that's what we're looking at now. So um, I think the first of the three is the main one that we need to be concerned about. That's the kind of 
inferential cognizer that we generate to realize things like impermanence and selflessness and so on. And so it's called inferential cognizer by the power of the fact. I think in volume two, it's called factual inference. It's a lot simpler, <laughs> simpler terminology. Um, and so this type of inference is used to realize uh, phenomena, phenomena that are only slightly hidden. Um, so you've probably heard this three, one way of dividing things is into three uh, divisions, uh, manifest or obvious or evident phenomena. That's things like the table, you know, things we can directly perceive. We don't need an inference to know them. We can just look at them and know them. That's the first type of phenomena, manifest or hidden. I think Venable calls it evident, evident phenomena. Anyway, different ways of translating it. And then, then there's hidden, hidden phenomena. So hidden phenomena are things we cannot access, we cannot know with direct perception, at least in a certain situation. Like with fire, I mean, fire is normally a manifest phenomena, but if it's inside of a stove, inside of a house, and we're outside, we're not able at that moment to see fire. But So it's hidden in that way, but it's just slightly hidden because we can know it by means of an inference. And this is the type of inference, uh, inferential cognizer by the power of the fact or factual inference. And the reason it's called that is um, because it understands a meaning or a fact that abides in the object. So there's something that's part of the object, you know, the nature of the object that we can know and by knowing that we'll be able to understand the object. Um, so for example, sound is impermanent. So impermanent is a fact about sound. It's a, you know, a na the nature of sound. It's already there. That's, that's just using my own language. <laughs> Impermanence is already there in sound, but it's not obvious to us. Mm -hmm. So to be able to realize the impermanence of sound, we, we need to have some kind of sign or reason to get at it. And the one reason, the main reason used is because it's a product, because it's produced. So when we know that whatever is produced is impermanent, whatever comes into existence because of causes and conditions is impermanent, it's changing. So when that becomes clear to us, that's established in our mind, then we can know, well, sound is impermanent or a table is impermanent, whatever kind of object you're working with. Um, we can see the impermanence or realize the impermanence of the object by using a sign. And that's the same kind of uh, inference that knows the existence of fire. Um, the presence of fire in, in the fireplace because of seeing the smoke. Because fire is something that is hot and burning and produces smoke. And that's something that's really there because there's smoke coming. That's as much as I understand, but you know, my understanding is quite limited. So that's the most important for us in our Dharma practice, that kind of inferential cognizer. 
And the second one is called Inferential Cognizer Through Renown. Um, and this is used to realize terminological suitability, which basically means that um, whatever is an object of thought can be called by any term or any name. If something is an object of thought, we can give it a name. We can give it whatever name we want. And this is what we do, human beings. We give names to babies and pets and buildings. And uh, even here at the Abbey, they give names to cars. <laughs> I don't know how many people in the world do that. but um, And storms, things like hurricanes and... You know, they give names to them, yeah. So this is something human beings do, and, and it's okay. It's acceptable. It's acceptable to, to give a name to that particular object because it's an object of thought. So a syllogism, I just made up a syllogism, um, you, you know, using this. Um, the big brown abbey truck is suitable to be called Haroldina because it exists among objects of thought. Gray. Gray? It's not brown, it's gray. Oh, maybe I'm colorblind. <laughs> okay, anyway, you know what I'm talking about. That big, noisy, uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I'm kind of smelly. <laughs> truck. But it works very hard. The big gray truck is... Is, is suitable to be called Haroldina because it exists among objects of thoughts. So that's the sign. The sign is it exists among objects of thought. So that sign can be used to say, um, this building we are in is suitable to be called Chenrezig Hall because it's, it exists among objects of thought. So that's, I don't know, you know, what this kind of inference is used for. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess it just does point to the fact that, yeah, really you can you can give a name. You, you, you can decide to build a building and give it a name, Buddha Hall. You know, we decide we're going to call this building Buddha Hall, even if it's not there yet. But in our imagination, we have Buddha Hall, and it's in the plans, and it's in the works, and we got the building permit and so on. So, yeah, we can just call, you give a name to things, and, and then it be, and then we, it, stick, it sticks, you know, we have the right to do that. And it also says that this type of inference is also a type of the first one. So it's 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 a maybe a subcategory of the first kind inference by the power of fact. So in fact, we can say there are just two types of inferences: <laughs> number one and number three. And then the third one, inferential cognizer through belief. This is used to realize uh, very hidden phenomena, phenomena we cannot know with our senses. We also can't know them by factual inference, um, by the power of the fact. Um, examples are the Buddha would say certain things such as, like the subtle, the subtle workings of karma, the subtle workings of cause and effect, being able to know which kind of causes bring about which kinds of results. 
So that's something we can't know. We can't see it with our senses and we can't know it by the power of fact. So we rely on an authority, someone who does know, like the Buddha. And so the, the example is there's a scripture in which the Buddha says, uh, through giving, you get resources. Through ethics, you get good rebirths. And, um, but, but to, to have an inferential realization that this, this, this kind of scripture is, is valid, you, you do need to go through some kind of investigation. There's a threefold investigation that you do. Um, you don't just, because the Buddha said, don't just blindly believe what I say, but you, you know, investigate it. And so this threefold investigation is you check other aspects of the scripture, other things that the Buddha said in that scripture. And whatever that scripture says about manifest or evident phenomena, if you can re realize that that can't be contradicted by direct perception. Okay, so there's nothing in that scripture that can be contradicted by direct perception if it's a manifest phenomenon. That's the first one. And the second um, investigation is anything in the scripture that talks about hidden phenomena, slightly hidden phenomena, for example, impermanence or selflessness or emptiness. Um, so if that can't be contradicted by that first type of inference, inference by the power of the fact, then, then, then that, you know, that's the second of the three investigations. And the third one is, if anything in the scripture that is talking about very hidden phenomena, um, you, you check to see if there's no contradiction between what was said earlier earlier and what was said later. So you're checking to see if there's anything contradictory. That's basically what it boils down to. You're checking the scripture to see if you can find anything contradictory, anything that contradicts direct perception, anything that contradicts uh, inference by the power of the fact, or anything that's internally inconsistent. Like if the Buddha said one thing at one point, another thing at another point, that, that's contradictory. Something like that. I mean, I haven't gone through this process, but that's how, it, how it's explained. So we do have to investigate the scriptures that the Buddha said, but there is a way of investigating them to see if they're free of contradiction. And if we, and if we go through that investigation, we say, no, there's no contradiction here, then we can safely assume or have an inference, an actual inferential cognizer, uh, through belief. We can rely on, we can, you know, feel, oh, this scripture is reliable. So that's about inferential cognizers. The second one here, the inferential cognizer through renown. What it always reminds me of the the third type of dependent arising in terms and label, but the Sautantrikas don't 
uphold that as they wouldn't consider that to be a form of dependent arising, do they? No. It just happens to be similar in my mind. Is that the extent of it? Yeah, I mean, I guess they would say that, yeah, things are just labeled, things are just named, but they don't go the full way as Prasangika and say, therefore, they don't inherently exist. I mean, all the schools, for example, all the Buddhist schools, including Vibhashika, when it comes to the person, you know, what is a person? What is the conventionally existent person? They say, oh, it's, it's imputed. It's just imputed onto the aggregates, okay? But that doesn't mean they realize emptiness of inherent existence of the person. Okay, so you can know that, thing, that there's imputation going on, that there's naming and labeling going on, but that doesn't necessarily mean you realize emptiness, as explained by Prasangika. What about the COVID? Is it considered an inferential? COVID? Yes. Because you can't really see it. Is it? You can, it can with, a microscope. with a microscope. Huh? It can be seen with a microscope. Yeah. So it's considered a direct manifest. Yeah. It would be a manifest phenomenon. I mean, maybe I can't see it if I look at it. <laughs> you know, maybe we can't see it with the naked eye, but um, yeah, with certain instruments, it can be seen. And maybe an aria, you know, a being with <laughs> clairvoyance would be able to see it with their direct perception. Um, yeah, you know, something being manifest uh, doesn't mean everybody has to be able to see it as long as there's some beings who can see it with direct perception. I think that's, I think, as far as I understand, that's that's enough for something to be manifest. So this is not really kind of from my perspective, if there is a, actually an objective standard, and if somebody is able to see it, then it's a manifest phenomena. Not from my perspective, it's manifest. Like my birth date is, it is very hidden. For me, mm. for my mom, my mom is not hidden. It's a manifest <laughs> phenomena. So yeah. So there. So is that? Is it not relative? Yeah, yes. it is. It is like I was saying with the fire. You know, if you're outside the house, mm -hmm. you can't see the fire. But someone inside the house, okay. for them, it's 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 manifest. So whether something is manifest or not does. I mean, in general. Fire is something manifest, and in general, the birth of a baby is manifest. Okay, it can be seen, but that doesn't mean it's seen by everybody. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So for my case, like for, for me, COVID is an inferential. I mean, it's a it's it's a slightly hidden phenomena because I'm inferring that all these people are getting sick. I'm seeing that all these people are getting sick, and there might be something that is spreading in them, but I cannot manifestly see that there is this virus that is kind of a power of the fact yeah i'm not sure i haven't thought about that what kind of knowledge that might be just correct assumption which we're going to get to soon you know because actually a lot of the knowledge that we have both dharma knowledge as well as worldly knowledge um is correct assumption which we're going to get to soon we we just believe what we were told we don't have 
direct perception of all of it. And we also don't use inference to realize it's true or not. We just believe what other people tell us. <laughs> we might be correct. As long as the information is correct, then it's correct assumption. Um, so to have an inference, you actually have to go through a process yourself to you know, realize something that is hidden to you. Okay. So let's move on then the non-valid cognizers. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there are two types of valid cognizers, direct perception and inference. And then there's five types of non-valid cognizers. So these are other types of minds, uh, knowers that are not valid for various reasons. Um, so they don't fulfill the definition of a valid cognizer, which is new and incontrovertible. So the first one is called subsequent cognizers. And the subsequent cognizer uh, is a later moment that follows a valid cognizer. So for example, when we see an object, like seeing the color red, the first moment of seeing red, provided we see it correctly, and we see it as red and not as green or something, that first moment of perceiving it is a valid direct perceiver, new and incontrovertible. But then the next second moment and third moment and however many following moments of continuing to perceive red, those are subsequent cognizers and they're va they're correct they're, they're they're correct but they lack the newness the freshness of the first moment mm -hmm. and so that's why they're considered non-valid and so subsequent cognizers can be perception or conception so the first the example i just gave was perception okay so with any of our five senses you know, the first moment of hearing an object or smelling something or tasting something or feeling a sensation in the body, first moment is a valid one. And the second and third and so on moments are subsequent cognizers. Um, subsequent cognizers can also be conception. So the most common example of that would be when we see an object or hear a sound, and then later we think about it. I mean, and later it could be, you know, just a few seconds later <laughs> we start thinking about it. Or it could be later that day or later that life. So when we're um, remembering, remembering something we saw or heard or smelled or tasted or whatever, uh, had a direct perception of it, we're remembering it later, that is a subsequent cognizer. A conceptual one, conceptual mm -hmm. sub subsequent cognizer. Mm -hmm. So again, we have lots of those, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm always thinking about <laughs> things that I saw and smelled and tasted and so on. So those are subsequent mm -hmm. cognizers. But um, another example of a subsequent cognizer that's conceptual would be if you do have a valid inferential realization of sound being impermanent or the emptiness of the eye 
uh, you know, the I being empty of inherent existence. So if you have a valid inferential cognizer, the first moment of that is valid. The second moment, if you're continuing to contemplate that object, second moment, third moment, and so on in that continuum would be subsequent cognizer, conceptual, conceptual subsequent cognizer. Yeah, so we have lots of these in our daily life, including when we meditate. We meditate and we're bringing to mind experiences we had to illustrate our meditation topic, like impermanence, death, precious human rebirth, suffering, and so on. So, um, or visualizing the Buddha, remembering a statue that we saw or a tanka that we saw, and then recreating that image in our mind. So these are subsequent cognizers. Okay, number two is wrong consciousnesses. So these are minds that are really wrong. <laughs> and they could be perception or conception. Now what's wrong with these minds is they are mistaken with regard to their engaged object. So I think last week or the week before I had a mm -hmm. chart up there mm -hmm. showing different kinds, two different kinds of objects, the engaged object and the appearing object. Mm -hmm. The engaged object is the object your, the mind is actually dealing with. Um, yeah, so when we're looking at blue, blue is the engaged object. When we're thinking about blue, blue is the engaged object. So it's whatever the mind is engaged with. Is the engaged object and so when the mind is wrong or mistaken with regard to the engaged object for example a mirage um, you know there's a disappearance we call a mirage it looks like water it's not water but it looks like water and if and if we believe that it's water yeah whether it's with perception, you know, our perception, our perceptual mind thinks that's water, or with our conceptual mind, we think that's water, then that would be a wrong consciousness. So other examples of wrong consciousnesses that are perceptions would be, you know, hearing an echo of our own voice as somebody else's voice it's not somebody else's voice it's just the echo of your own voice but if, it, if you if it's misperceived as somebody else's voice then that's a wrong mm, consciousness one they always give in the in the text is seeing a blue snow mountain <laughs> i don't know why that happens but um and maybe because of the light certain mm -hmm. times of the day it can appear blue mm -hmm. and you might believe it's blue oh they also say if you've got jaundice i don't know if this is true or not but if you have jaundice then things that are white appear yellow so you might look at snow and think it's yellow <laughs> or perceive it as yellow yeah so yeah those are examples of wrong perceptions and then wrong conceptions, um, 
the, the example I gave before was um, thinking yellow is per permanent or thinking sound is permanent. Thinking anything is permanent when it's in fact impermanent. Or thinking that there's a self-supporting, substantially existent self. Or thinking that there's a permanent, unitary, independent self. Or thinking that you are the President of the United States when you didn't actually get elected to that position. <laughs> so, yeah, people can have these kind of... And all these conspiracy theories. Yeah thinking there was no holocaust, thinking the world is flat, thinking, what, what is that guy in Buffalo? I, 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 it was a new term, white genocide, is it? There's this conspiracy theory. Oh, replacement theory. Replacement huh? theory. Replacement theory. Well, the, yeah, the term I saw said white genocide. So people are, I guess people think that white people are getting killed off. killed off and we have to save them. So <laughs> anyway. Lots of examples of <laughs> wrong conceptions, unfortunately. Okay, so then doubt. Number three, doubt. This is only conception. It's never perception. It's a conceptual mind. And it's when you're, you, yeah, you're in doubt. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And there's three kinds of doubt. One is leaning towards the incorrect conclusion. Maybe there's rebirth, maybe not, probably not. So you're leaning towards thinking there is no such thing as rebirth. And then there's doubt leaning towards the correct conclusion. Like maybe there's rebirth, maybe not, but probably is. I think I'll go with that. <laughs> And then there's doubt that's equally wavering in the middle. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't, I don't know. So you're not kind of leaning in any one direction. So only that first kind of doubt is, is a um, afflictive mind, a negative mind. A, yeah, one of the six root afflictions. But um, positive doubt or doubt that's leaning towards a correct conclusion and a dharma Dharma topic is is actually helpful. Dalai Lama says, and Buddha said, you know, we should question. We should not blindly believe, but investigate and question. And as long as we're leaning towards the conclusion that will be beneficial for us, then it's can be positive. So yeah, doubt here is just any of the three types of doubt. And it's not valid because there's no certainty. No certainty about your awareness. And number four is called correct assumption. This is also only conception. And um, so these are correct in the sense that you your thinking is going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. For example, thinking, oh, the table is impermanent. Yeah, so you, you, you accept that. You believe that. The table is impermanent. My body is impermanent. Sound is impermanent. So you got the correct idea, but it's not, it has, you, you haven't gone through the whole process of investigating and coming to an inferential 
cognizer, valid inferential cognizer. Um, so one reason that this could happen is you, you believe in impermanence just because the Buddha said so, because your teacher said so, and you, you know, well, that sounds good. It makes sense. And they seem to know what they're talking about. So yeah, it's probably true. <laughs> so you've got the correct idea, but it's not solid. It's not, it's not a valid inference. And even if you know the correct reason, like for example, you know, oh, sound is impermanent because it's a product. Yep, I know that. <laughs> but you haven't gone through the whole process of, you know, uh, what is it, the three, uh, three modes? You know, I forget what they're called. But anyway, you haven't gone through that whole process to generate an actual inference about it. Uh, inference of that. So, uh, as I was saying before, a lot of our knowledge, both Dharma knowledge as well as worldly knowledge, is is this correct assumption. We heard it from our teachers and our parents. We read it in books and in the New York Times and the BBC. <laughs> And as long as it's correct, as long as the information is correct and not distorted, not a conspiracy theory, then, then it's correct assumption. But we haven't actually gone through an investigation to have a valid, uh, either a valid direct perception, like we hear some, uh, something that happened in Ukraine this morning, and it's on the news. I mean, we could go there. Well, it's already over, so we wouldn't be able to see it. <laughs> Yeah, so, but we didn't have a, you know, a valid direct perception of that. And we also don't have a valid um, inferential cognizer of it. But the BBC said so, and the New York Times said so. And usually they're right. Usually they're reliable sources of information. So it's probably true that that thing did happen. So, yeah. And like this example of our birth date, <laughs> you know. Um, Geshima Kelsan Lama uses that. I mean, it's really true. You know, we rattle off our birth date whenever we are asked at the hospital or the visa office, what's your birth date? You know, we just say it. But how do we know? <laughs> our mother told us it's on our birth certificate, the hospital, you know, official piece of paper from the hospital signed by the doctors and the nurses. That's the day we were born. It could be wrong. I mean, <laughs> my mother might might have got the date wrong and the hospital might have got the date wrong or whatever. We could be wrong. But as long as it is correct, then we just assume that. It's like an assumption. So this is this is an okay, you know, we can't run around the world and check up every bit of information that we <laughs> hear about or read about. Yeah, take too much time. Um, and, and in terms of Dharma, I mean, it's good to have correct assumption. Yes, things are impermanent. And yes, it's possible to reach enlightenment. And yes, there's rebirth. You know, to go along with those ideas until we're able to verify them with our own direct perception or valid inference. So it's, it's helpful.
Okay, number five, the last one is in, it's the, the technical term translated from Tibetan is minds to which the object appears but is not ascertained, also known as inattentive perception. That's just a much simpler term. And it's descriptive as well, because this is, so this is only perception, never conception. And it's, it happens again, a lot of times, um, when our, our attention is focused on one thing, we're looking at something, we're listening to something, and then another perception happens, and we're not fully aware of it. We're not, because we're not paying full attention. So if we're absorbed in reading something, reading a book, or um, or watching something, TV or movie, or absorbed in our meditation, <laughs> and somebody says something, somebody comes along and says something to us, we do hear the sound of their voice, okay? So there is perception there. But because our attention is elsewhere, we don't fully grasp what was said. And yeah, so if someone asks us afterward, what did that person say? We can't say it. So it's not a valid perception. Why can't you have an inattentive conception? <laughs> like you have a thought that's partially finished. Or <laughs> <laughs> Inattentive conception. Um, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't write the book. <laughs> I mean, what just popped up in my mind was you know, what they say in psychology. You know that we have a lot of things going on in our mind that we're not fully aware of, and yet, what do they call it? Like subliminal, not subliminal, mm -hmm. but like subconscious. Subconscious, yeah, yeah things happening in there that we're not fully aware of, fully attentive to, and yet they can still affect us and come out. Um, is that what you're talking about, that kind of thing? Yeah, or like more in like meditation of kind of having a thought, and but then moving on to something else and being mm. like, oh, that would have been a good thought to follow through <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> Certainly, that, that kind of thing happens. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't know the reason why they, they only talk about perception, inattentive perception, but not conception. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this way of talking about different kinds of minds is all-inclusive and covers everything. Like there might be some types of mind that don't fit into any of these, but... I don't know. I think this comes from Dharmakirti, Dignaga, their system of explaining the mind. And so, um, so there's these five types of non-valid minds and the two types of valid minds. So they make up the seven, um, seven types of mind, seven types of awareness. And, um, yeah, you can find more information in, in Volume 2, Approaching the Buddhist Path. No, not that one. Um, Foundations. Foundations of Buddhist Thought. 
practice. <laughs> it's easier to just call them volumes. <laughs> anyway, there's more information about there in there about these seven. And um, it is helpful to know about these minds when it comes to our practice, because we are trying to generate realizations like realizing in subtle impermanence or realizing selflessness or realizing emptiness. And so there's actually a procedure that may not cover all of these types of, of, of minds, but many of them. So for example, we start with a wrong consciousness. Number two, um, believing in a self, let's say, since we're just talking about Sotrantika here, the self-sufficient, substantially existent self, that kind of self that's like the boss, the master, the controller. So we have this innate conception that there is that kind of self inside of us somewhere. Seems like it's there and we just believe in it. So that's our own consciousness. That kind of self doesn't exist. It's not there at all. Um, and yet we believe in it, grasp at it. Then when we come to Buddhism, we start hearing teachings, reading books, and they tell us that kind of self isn't there. That kind of self doesn't exist. It's false. And then we'll probably go to number three, doubt. <laughs> start to have doubt. Yeah, Buddha said that kind of self doesn't exist. It feels like it's there. It feels like it's real, but Buddha said it's not. So what's going on here? And we're probably curious, we want to know more, we study more. And so with further study and reflection and discussion, then we may get to number four, correct assumption. We believe, yes, a self-sufficient, substantially existent self does not exist. It's false, it's wrong. So we got the right idea, but it's not yet of an actual realization. It's not yet a valid uh, inferential cognizer. And so we keep studying and, you know, work meditating, working with the reasons why that kind of self doesn't exist. And eventually at some point we will get it. We will get the realization, the, um, a valid inferential cognizer that realizes the emptiness of that type of self, self-sufficient, substantially existent self. So then we're in the in the league of valid cognizers. But an inferential valid cognizer isn't good enough. We need to get a direct realization. It's actually a yogic direct perceiver. Um, and so we keep meditating, and eventually that happens. The mind switches from the inferential realization to the direct realization of selflessness. That's the best mind, the most correct mind. And then we're an Arya and we're able to eliminate the obscurations that prevent us from attaining liberation and enlightenment. So the first moment of the uh, valid inferential cognizer realizing uh, selflessness, that's a valid one, but the subsequent moments, yeah, the second and third and so on, later moments, those are number one, subsequent cognizers, but that's good because once we get a realization, we need to keep, keep it up. We need to, you know, make our mind more and more familiar with it. 
And so we use subsequent cognitors to do that, to increase our familiarity with this object that's so important. And the same with the direct realization. When we have the direct realization of selflessness, only that first moment is a valid one. And then later moments, number two and number three and so on, would be subsequent cognizers. And so in this process of going from wrong consciousness, believing in this false kind of self, all the way up to the direct realization of its emptiness, most of these are covered, except for number five. <laughs> I don't know why that one's on there. It doesn't seem to play a role yeah. in that process, mm -hmm. except along the way, maybe sometimes we're sitting in teachings and we're thinking about something else and not paying attention to what the teacher says. So we need to recognize that and realize the importance of paying attention to the teachings, not letting our mind wander. Okay, so let's continue. I think we can finish Subtrantica today because there's not much more. Yeah, so this term, um, valid, what, what, what's, what's being translated as valid cognizer, um, is, is, is used uh, for other things as well. Now, this came up when we were studying the Pramanavartika with Geshe Yeshitake because um, um, it referred to the Buddha being valid, remember? There was mm -hmm. this whole discussion about, I mean, uh, that was what he was trying to prove. <laughs> All of chapter 2 is proving the Buddha is a valid person. So it's the same term um, that's used for a valid cognizer. Mm -hmm. So in, the, in, the, in our text, in the Tenet's text, it mentions there's three types of valid object possessors. And again, that term object possessor could be a person, it could be a mind, it could be a, a name or a term. Um, so it's just giving examples of three types of valid object possessors. So first is valid persons. So an example of a valid person is the teacher Buddha. I mean, I think the term, the, the term for valid cognizer really only refers to minds. Um, but it's used for these other objects as well, um, mm. as we saw in Pramanavartika. So um, Buddha is a valid person. And then valid speech, an example of that would be the Dharma wheel of the Four Truths. So the teaching that the Buddha gave, his very first teaching after his enlightenment, where he explained the Four Noble Truths. So that's um, an example of valid speech. And then valid minds or consciousnesses, examples would be valid direct perceivers and valid inferential cognizers. So I don't know how important this is, but it's maybe just to show that this term valid is used in other ways besides just minds, but mainly it's, it is referring to minds. Mm -hmm. Okay, then number six, sixth uh, point in the outline, the mode of asserting selflessness. So this is the same as the Vaibhashikas. It's not, there's nothing different. Um, there's two types of selflessness of persons, a coarse one, 
emptiness of a permanent, unitary, independent person or self. That's the kind of self that the non-Buddhists believe in and assert. Um, so as Venerable was reading today from the um, volume seven, um, this is not innate. It's only, it's just something that comes up in the mind because either learning it from teachers or maybe thinking of it on your own. So it's just kind of intellectually created rather than an innate view. And then the subtle selflessness of persons is the emptiness of a self-supporting, substantially existent person. So that is innate. Everybody has that one. That's the boss, the big boss. The sense of an I that's in charge, master, controller of our body and mind. So we all have that sense of the self, but it's wrong. It's something that doesn't exist. It's created by the mind. And so we need to realize that it's in fact empty, non-existent. And then, so they only have selflessness of persons. They don't have selflessness of phenomena, just like the Vaibhashikas. Okay, then number seven, the last point, presentation of grounds and paths. So this is almost the same as Vaibhashika, but there's just um, a couple of differences. So the first bullet point says, the three types of practitioners hearers, solitary realizers, and bodhisattvas collect merit on all four learning paths. What are the four learning paths? Preparation, seeing, meditation. Meditation, okay. So anyone who's trying to attain a goal of either nirvana liberation or enlightenment will collect merit on all four of those paths. Um, according to Vibhashika, only hearers collect merit on all four learning paths. Solitary realizers and bodhisattvas only collect merit on the first path, the path of accumulation. And, and so as a result of that, according to the Vibhashikas, a bodhisattva um, in their final life, you know, when they're born, they're still on the path of accumulation. They're still an ordinary being and they have polluted aggregates, <laughs> polluted body at least. Yeah. Yeah. They're polluted aggregates that were thrown by karma and afflictions because they weren't yet an aria. And then in that same lifetime, they go all the way, you know, from the path of accumulation to Buddhahood with that same body and that same polluted body. <laughs> And so that, that body doesn't change, doesn't transform and become a Buddha. It's still something polluted, something to be abandoned. This is according to Vibhashika. But according to this school, the Satrantika, that's not the case. Because, for example, a Bodhisattva will be accumulating merit over three countless great eons, um, going through all the four learning paths. And so what Geshe Jamba Tekshok said is, um, the result is a progressive change of the body so that at the end, the Buddha's form aggregate is 
the Buddha and is not a true suffering, as the Vibhashikas say. So the body is able to change as one is progressing over the four paths and finally reaching the fifth path, path no more learning, Buddhahood. And then by that time, the body is purified. <laughs> but as Buddha doesn't have an impure body, a polluted body. So that's nice. <laughs> I mean, at least it's closer to the <laughs> uh, Yeah, so the second bullet point says, therefore, Buddha's form aggregate is asserted to be Buddha. And, yeah. Then the last bullet point, the way they present the obscurations, the things to be abandoned, um, the way of progressing on the paths and grounds and so on is like the Vaibhashika. There's just one exception that um, Geshe Ma Kelsang Wangmo mentioned in her booklet. Uh, no, no, sorry, not an exception. <laughs> it's just It just wasn't mentioned in our text, but uh, remember, the Vaibhashikas say that when uh, hearers, solitary realizers, and Buddhas, when they've reached their goal, then they continue to live, and then eventually they die, they pass away. And when they do, their mind ceases. Their mind goes out of existence. So the Satrantika agree with that as well. Yeah. So there are three final vehicles. There's no, you know, switching from Arhat, here Arhat to Mahayana path and then becoming a Buddha. So there's so no you such... reach, there's, there's three final vehicles. So hearers reach their goal and that's it. Then they die mm -hmm. and they go out of existence. Solitary realizers reach their goal and then they die and go out of existence. <laughs> Buddhas reach their goal. When they die, poof. Go out of existence. So, so there's no bodhisattvas in the South Trantica. Yeah, there are bodhisattvas. So the bodhisattvas spend three countless great eons creating merit and finally become Buddha, and then they teach for a few years. Okay. Well, <laughs> how long? Forty-five years. Buddha taught for forty-five years, but that's not very long. And then, and then, yeah, poof. When you attain um, parinirvana. Mind goes out of existence. So, so that's. But the South Trantikas say that the Arhats, the solitary realized and heroes, go out of existence. Bodhisattvas are the exception to the rule. No. Well, a Bodhisattva becomes a Buddha, and then when the Buddha goes, Buddha passes away, right. his, his mind also ceases. All that. Yeah. Wow. All that work that's for nothing. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the Mahayana say. All that work for nothing. You spent three countless great eons, and then the result was so small. <laughs> well, they would say, "Oh yes, but the Buddha taught the Dharma, and then the Dharma lives on and benefits so many people." Yes, that's true. And then they but... get extinguished, and they become Buddhas as well. Their minds extinguished oh, as well. Of whoever is learning the Dharma, they're yeah. doing all, all this yeah, beautiful yeah. teaching. It's interesting that there are periods where the Dharma doesn't exist if the Buddha is continually teaching. Well, I don't know if they would agree with that, if that's part of their worldview. But the will-turning Buddhas will introduce turn Buddhas. Dharma. Yeah, that's a good point. A good point. Um, 
um, well, yeah, the Dharma goes out of existence, but then some Bodhisattva has been working his way into enlightenment, and then he becomes a Buddha, and then he reintroduces the Dharma. And if there's all these Buddhas around, shouldn't they be continuously propagating the Dharma? You know, in that line of thinking. Oh, well, oh, they do say it depends on the merit of sentient beings. It depends on receptivity. So if beings' minds are totally unopen and unreceptive to learning the Dharma, then the Buddhas are not going to come and teach the Dharma. And they'll help in other ways. They can come into the world and be doctors and you know, peacemakers and you know, things like that. So they're always helping in other ways. But to actually you know, turn the wheel of the Dharma, um, beings need to be in the right mental frame. I think that's what they say. And, and yeah, like in this world, there'll come a time, I suppose, eventually when the Dharma will not exist anymore and beings will become really deluded. And yeah, so it won't be good for the Buddhists to come into this world to teach the Dharma. But then they say, oh, but there's many other worlds in the universe. So Buddhists can be teaching Dharma somewhere else. <laughs> so there's always the Dharma. Dharma is always being taught somewhere to some beings. It's not like they're just kind of waiting and, you know. For Earth to shape up. Hmm? For Earth to shape up. Yeah. I mean, that's, I suppose it's hard for many Westerners to believe in that kind of idea of so many worlds and different types of beings and different things going on other than just this planet Earth. But that's what, it's in the scriptures. It's a much more inspiring thought mm. than being the only ones in town, you know. <laughs> Especially the way things are going. The way we're, we're behaving lately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's always hope if you think, oh, many lifetimes and many universes and many worlds. And there's hope. Okay, this this world's going down the drain, but, you know, somewhere else, things are... Flourishing. flourishing yeah buddhas are teaching <laughs> people are many many beings are following the path and so on okay so i was thinking to start chita mantra today but no more time so we'll start that next week the next school chita mantra very interesting okay, okay so thank you and we'll dedicate Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore.